Welcome to the Bridging Connections podcast. This podcast will introduce you to the people who are on the cutting edge of Jewish innovation. You will be hearing from founders and directors of contemporary organizations creating new paths to participate in Jewish life. In this podcast, you will learn about best practices, tips for engagement, and how to create meaningful connections. This is a place that will bridge you to the tools and resources used by the Jewish leaders, visionaries, and innovators that are creating a new sustainable Judaism. I'm your host, Elizabeth Gossage, and I welcome you to come bridge the gap with me. Hello, everyone. I am here today with Shira Berkowitz, who is the founder and CEO of Sacred Spaces. And as always, this is the favorite part of my job is to sit down and hear about the stories of the people that are creating new innovation and reshaping the way we see Jewish life in North America. So hello, Shira. I'm so happy to be here with you. And I would love to hear about your Jewish journey. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Let's see, my Jewish journey is that I grew up in a centrist Orthodox home in a large, wonderful family in New York. And my parents instilled in us this very deep sense of responsibility for the needs of our community. And I have these very clear memories of being a small child in the 80s. And we would spend our Sundays rallying to free Soviet Jewry or Shabbat afternoons visiting local nursing homes. And in the midst of all of that, also from my very earliest days, I was grappling with Jewish tradition or halakha, Jewish law, Parsha, the weekly Torah portion. And the ways in which these did or did not match with my understanding of fairness and justice. And I remember I used to enter these very long conversations with teachers and rabbis and friends. And it was only when I got to my gap year in Israel where I fell in love with text-based learning. And I realized that I didn't need a rabbi as an intermediary to access our tradition in that way. And later as a young adult, I discovered that it wasn't the texts themselves that were most challenging to me, but it was the ways in which various aspects of the texts had been used to justify certain ways of Jewish living. And I found that it sometimes helped me and continues to this day to help me. If I actually closed my safer door, my prayer book, and I connected with my soul, to the songs of our liturgy, to the hearts of the people around me, to the community, instead of getting stuck on the words in the page. That's so beautiful because uh, I'm going to relate personally to that. I love that you found this out as a very young person still in your gap year, because honestly, I'm just figuring that out now as a much older person, that what speaks to me are the nigunim, the tunes, the feel that that's what gets into my spirit. And I'm, I've just learned this in the last few years. So wherever we all are in our journey, and even if your journey is that you still do feel like you need the rabbis as an intermediary, wherever we are is great. And as we grow, we accept every place. So I love that you shared that. And I love that I could share part of my journey with you as well. So then, you know, take me further to 
what got you to start thinking about sacred spaces? And of course, I'm going to assume that as you talk about as you got there, you're going to be telling us kind of what sacred spaces is. Sure. And uh, thanks for sharing that, because I really I do think it's that, you know, the way in which we all connect to Jewish life and our own personal journeys and nigunim, um, all of this is is, you know, in way part of how I got to sacred spaces, because my first job after college was as a synagogue youth director. And I loved that job because I loved just thinking about the positive, wonderful aspects of engagement with Jewish life. And it was fun. And eventually I began consulting for other youth departments. And in the course of that work, I became passionate about formalizing the field of experiential Jewish education. So whether that was from designing curricula for interactive tefillah or a prayer service to cross-faith relief efforts to compensation and benefits, how are our youth directors being paid? And as part of that work, I became interested in what are the safety measures that youth departments are putting in place to safeguard youth from abuse? And I kind of fell down a black hole there and I never emerged. And the more I learned, the more I realized I actually didn't know. And my research took me to Christian communities to learn of reforms that were occurring there. And then I spent a year studying, surveying the Jewish landscape to see what systems of prevention existed. And there were some really strong programs that were focused on educating youth, but there was no one working on policy reform or a comprehensive systemic solution. And it felt like there was an obvious solution that was being implemented worldwide and that Jewish communities were by and large absent from the conversation and the efforts. And so that led to the foundation of Sacred Spaces, which is the brainchild of a group of Jewish professionals. It was about 2015 at this time. And we were all really frustrated by a cycle of what we were seeing, especially in the media at that time, of the cycle of institutional abuse, and then there would be cover-up, and then there would be the scramble to put in place reforms or sometimes superficial reforms in response to media exposure. And so we began to ask ourselves, what would it look like if we approached this as a proactive, preventative, systemic approach that was grounded in our Jewish values? What does our Jewish tradition have to say about this? Could this be a unifying rather than a divisive issue, right? Like you heard the word abuse and everyone sort of covered their ears, but like, what if this was more than that? And how do we begin to shift these really long entrenched institutional cultures so that Jewish organizations were not reactive, but instead were leading and were, were our partners. And so Sacred Spaces today partners with Jewish institutions to prevent and respond to sexual abuse and other abuses of power. And we do so across denominations because this is not a problem that belongs to one denomination or even to the Jewish community. This is a human problem. And we work across the lifespan and across different types of institutions. I'm so curious. But one of the things that really stood out to me was you said you came across this black hole. And my vision when you said that was you came into this black hole and you illuminated it. It's no longer black because you're shining light on this sore point, this difficulty, sorus, if you want to say in Yiddish and Hebrew, in our community, regardless of Jewish or otherwise, but throughout our community, and you shine light and you're working to improve it. So I think that image that came to me, I wanted to share because it was just beautiful. So tell me, I understood you said that Sacred Spaces works with 
institutions. So can you elaborate on that? Tell me more. How do you get involved in the institutions and what exactly, you know, can you give me some examples of programs that you're doing? Yeah. So we have, I'd say two main categories. One is on the prevention side. So before anything has happened, uh, an organization says we want to look at our organization. We want to do an assessment. Maybe we want to speak to our people and we want to find out where we're doing really well and where we need to grow. We want to put policies in place. We want to get trained so that we know how to identify early indicators of abuse, harassment, discrimination, and we know what to do about it and that we have systems in place to respond. And though I said the word response, I actually think developing the systems is prevention itself, right? Because if people know how to access support, then we can intervene a lot earlier and stop a problem from escalating. So that's on the prevention side. And on the response side, we offer case consultations. And so organizations will call us. Sometimes they're in a crisis. Sometimes they're not, but they just have a concern. Something's not feeling right. They're really wondering about something they're seeing. Or maybe they have a direct report. Um, It could be historic or current of some form of abuse of power or harassment, discrimination, and they want guidance. And so in the course of a few hours, we'll be able to outline a plan for them, listen to the facts, sort of analyze what's going on and identify the key next steps for them, which include prioritizing the safety of everybody in their organization, um, making sure that any of their communications are trauma-informed and thinking about organizational responsibility. So those are some of the things we do in the case consultation. And then we develop resources and the resources can fit on both sides. Our two biggest resources right now are our Alenu Safeguarding Children campaign and our Kayleen Policy Toolkit. Both of these are online web platforms. And the goal here was to take the work that we were doing with individual institutions and begin to scale to the 9,500 plus Jewish organizations across North America. And so Kayleen has six online modules. It's completely open access. And so organizations that want to develop policies for their organization, they can access education there, the sample policy language that they can then adapt. There are forms and protocols and sort of just, we don't want there to be a barrier to entry or somebody who says like, I can't access this. And then similarly on the youth side, Alenu lays out 10 best practices in child protection. And we have cohorts around the country And what that is really doing is taking standards that do exist, but making them specific to the Jewish community and then giving implementation tools. And so just one example of that might be, okay, so you know you need to screen employees and volunteers, right? And you know you need to conduct interviews. So of course we have a guide that will give you sample interview questions, but would you know what a red flag looks like if you saw it? Would you know the next question to ask? And so we provide simulated role plays with hired actors in different denominational settings. So that's sort of what people can access through these tools. I love that because that's what came to me is like, maybe I do know the red flag and I see it, but then I might be afraid or nervous about confronting it or what would be the next step. So the idea that you have the resources to guide the person or the organization through those next steps and in dealing with that is, is just amazing. 
and organizations need that scaffolding. So that's great. Right. We're hearing, we're hearing, how can you make this as easy as possible for us? We have a lot of other things we need to take care of. It's, It's a delicate topic. And as we're talking, one of the things that comes up for me that is very delicate. And I'm I'm going to ask you this question that I know you may not be prepared for, but just give the best answer you can is because this is a delicate topic. And so often a report will come out about abuse in an organization carried out by a very beloved member of that organization. And there's pushback in the community. Oh no, that person couldn't have done that. We love that person. They have been a pillar in our community. And I'm curious to know, what are some of the resources that are used when dealing with a situation like that? It's such a great question because it goes to the crux of where we mess up. And so I'd say a few things there. One is that that is a really normal reaction. It's, you know, in psychological terms, it's called cognitive dissonance, where we know someone We know some facts to be true. This is a wonderful person. They have done great things. I know this personally because they've done good things for me and my family and my community. And all of that can be true. And it doesn't mean that there's not also other true things. And so reconciling these two seemingly very disparate notions, especially when it's someone we love or trust or even just know is very difficult. And so some of the tools are as follows. The first is if, and here's a, a Hebrew term, if you are no gayabadavar, which literally translates to touch the thing. So you are close to this, then you shouldn't be the one who is responsible for case handling, right? This is the time where you pick up a phone and you call an outside consultant who is professionally competent and skilled to guide you in addressing this. Um, that, that might be when somebody calls sacred spaces, but they could call somebody else. But the point is that they're not doing it alone. And even within their institution, they're not doing it alone. <laughs> so there shouldn't be one person handling something because one person has one perspective. You want to make sure that everything is going through a process. And so this is when you pull out your policies and your procedures, right? And it's this is not when you go based on your intuition. The question is never, do I trust this person? The question is never, do I think this happened or not? Those are the wrong questions. And they're often where our community divides. People will say, well, I need to figure out if this person was using poor judgment or had nefarious intent you're likely not going to be able to answer that question. And so instead, the question we need to ask is, does this violate our policy? If it were true, would it violate our policy? Is this what a role model should look like? So instead of asking the question, was this technically abusive? Did this technically, was this illegal? Those are the wrong questions. Is this the person we want to trust to uphold and model what safe behavior looks like? For me, regardless if the person used poor judgment or had malintent, it still has to be reconciled. It still has to be dealt with. And still there needs to be things put in place so that it doesn't continue regardless of what happens. That's right. Right. I would love it if we can start to see our communities move beyond personalizing this to procedure. So instead of like, don't you trust me or look at how much we've done together? Where is your loyalty? This should be just standard. So This is not personal. This has nothing to do with whether we think you're a good educator or not. This has nothing to do with whether we think you're a good person or not, this or a good leader. This just has to do with that no matter who we would 
be hearing complaints about if we get a complaint of a certain nature, we must look into it. And that's it. It's just an inquiry. And then we go from there. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. This has been a serious conversation and it's important. I'm going to go backwards a little bit and ask you to kind of talk about what the mission looked like when you started Sacred Spaces, which is now seven years ago, and how it's evolved. And, and maybe you can include like, what impact have you seen that you've made so far? So I'd say there are two very clear ways in which we've evolved. The first is that we, when I first became interested in this, because I was coming to this as a youth director, I was focused on children. And it became clear fairly early on that because our issue was institutional abuse, the dynamics that would lead to abuse or to the mishandling of abuse and the community's response, these were the same dynamics across the lifespan. Uh, and so by the time we were drafting our mission, we focused broadly, we expanded our work on the ground to young adults and then to harassment and discrimination in workplaces and other Jewish organizations. And most notably with the release of our Kaleem Policy Toolkit this past month, which addresses that. And then early in the pandemic, we became aware of the extreme isolation and increased risk of abuse that were, was being faced by the elderly. And we put out a series on this topic. And this coming year, we will be expanding more fully into elder abuse. And so we will officially this year be formally working to prevent and address abuse across the lifespan. So that is one way we have shifted. And the second is that in our early days, we were really focusing very heavily on policy. We have come to learn through doing the work that the policy itself, while critical, is really meaningless on its own. And it's the process that's undertaken to form the policy, the conversations, the education, the cultural shift, the choice points that leaders have to make, and the practice of living the policy in the everyday, programmatic, operational realities that an organization faces, that's what makes the difference. And so you've asked about impact. You know, I'd say that there's the obvious impact. The obvious impact comes from trainings, cohort work, policy development, where we can see a very big shift from what was in place in the organization beforehand to what is in place after. And we start to hear, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's a few years down the road, how policies that are put in place or training somebody had then led to certain decisions that could have protected hundreds or thousands of people. And so that is always meaningful to me. We don't usually get to hear that, but every now and then people come back to us. And so I'd say the the less obvious impact because we work with organizations that we don't always see the impact it has on the individuals. But every now and then <laughs> we'll be walking down the street or somebody comes up to us and says, I just want you to know I was the person on the other end of the consult, right? Because the organization never tells us, they don't tell us the name of the people. We don't know who's impacted by the decision. And they'll talk about that the way an organization responded gave them the support and healing that they needed during a very difficult time. So those are ways that are particularly meaningful to me that we are seeing impact. So if an organization is dealing with things like this, what's their first step? What do you recommend that they do? Or, and I guess part of this question is, how do they find you? I mean, that's tongue in cheek, of course, in the show notes, we'll have your website and everything, but what are the steps they start to take? Are you asking on the prevention side or the response side? Well, let's start with the response side, because I think that's where, you know, an organization sees what something that's troublesome and needs to take action. So let's start with the response side. So on the response side, they'd send an email to our info box, which is staffed by our team who is looking at it. And 
would reach back out and offer an intake. We always start with an intake so that we get a sense of what's going on. We can bring the right consultants on the call and also so that the organization makes sure that they have the right people who are there for the consultation, right? We need everyone in the organization's leadership or the people who should be involved to be a part of, of thinking this through together. Sometimes we get like somebody says, oh, well, we'll put our attorney on the call or we'll put our executive director on the call, but they have a rabbi or they have spiritual leadership. And the answer is no, this is spiritual work and you all need to come to this jointly. So the first step really is just to reach out. And I'd say that earlier people are able to do this, the better, because it's so much easier to respond well when you take a moment and think it through than when you have to clean up a mess that you unintentionally made. It's the perfect transition into the prevention side. And I guess the question is then, how do you get organizations to know that they need to start with prevention? I know it's a tough question. It's the question, right? Because we can put out as much material as we want, but people have to use it. I'd say that we always see an uptick. On the prevention side, after there's media coverage, a big case, because the reality is that people are dealing with lots of stuff like COVID pandemic, let's say. And it's hard sometimes to think about something that is not in your face. And so then if it is, (laughs) um, people will immediately realize we better get moving here. But increasingly, what we are seeing is that it is starting to become just part of what you do. You don't open a building without a fire safety code and making sure that you have fire drills. It's just, you know, hopefully you never have a fire, but you still put this in place. And we're starting to see an understanding of this, of we need to have policies, training, conversation, and systems in place to protect. Day one, yes. I was thinking about that just as myself, as a very new organization. And made me think about like, how have I put this into place? Is there something in my bylaws? We're working on policies and procedures now. So will there be, what will be in there to prevent any type of abuse that could happen in the future? Right now I'm a one woman show, but I hope to be more than that at one time. And I, I think what you're highlighting is really important, right? Which is not that we have to do all of this at once right away, especially understanding that there are smaller organizations, new organizations. I know what it means to be a startup, right? How do we handle this if maybe we haven't put systems in place until this point? And so I'd say, you know, don't get overwhelmed by your like ideal gold standard dreams. Keep those dreams and then just pick one place to start. And so I'd say, even if you don't have policies yet, you can ask some basic questions such as who do we report to in this organization? Do we have multiple pathways for reporting? Are we super clear? And do we talk about it really often so that people just know that you can come forward and that there is a way to get help? Is that everything? No. Is that a really good place to start and very basic? Yes. So just sort of encouraging people. You could attend a one-hour training. You could have some conversations in, throughout the year in your organization. And these are baby steps forward that often, if you're authentic in the way you're dipping your toe, it organically will lead to additional steps and other people stepping forward and saying, hey, how can I help? How can I be a part of this? You mentioned in the beginning that we know very well that this is not only a Jewish problem, that this is a global problem. And I'm curious to know if you work with other organizations 
that are not necessarily Jewish and how you're impacting them and they may be impacting you. Yeah, we have deep partnerships outside of the Jewish community, both in the faith communities as well as at the national level. And so uh, within faith communities, our very close partner is Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. Um, And I spent time out with Grace, learning about their work, studying with them. I co-authored a book with Boz Chivijan on church policies and the Zero Abuse Project, which is Victor Veith. Um, And Victor is in many ways how I got into this work because very early on, it was so clear that you could change some of the words. You could change rabbi for pastor or priest or imam. And you're dealing with some of the very same topics. And of course, there are differences, but we are so much better when we learn from each other and build on each other. And so we meet on a monthly basis to talk about initiatives in faith communities. And then at the national level, a member of the Prevention Coalition, uh, Sacred Spaces sits on the Prevention Coalition, and we meet with other organizations in the field doing work at the national level, learning uh, about best practices, sharing with each other. And that's been really helpful as we launched Elenu, where we've had partners from the field reviewing our material. So uh, I guess the transition is then to, I'd love you to tell me about organizations in Jewish life that are exciting to you or that you're working with or that you just think are amazing and you want to shout them out. I'll say there are so many Jewish organizations we work alongside in the field because it takes so many different approaches to this issue. And I would put a spotlight on one emerging organization that I think we should all keep an eye on is Magain for Jewish Communities in Israel, which is led by Shana Aronson. And the amount of work that they are doing in supporting victim survivors with a skeletal staff is amazing. And in particular, following the Chaim Walder tragedy, Magain just stepped up. So really great to look at their work. Amazing. And what really stood out to me as you listed so many great organizations is that my thought is that when we work together, we are stronger. And so it's amazing how you are really focusing on making sure that every voice is is heard and every place is safe. You know, the work we do, it's intersectional and we can't focus on one singular abuse of power and ignore other abuses of power because we won't create the organizations we need that are safer, more respectful, more equitable, that then prevent the abuse of power. And so we work really hard to find partners. We're always open and eager to learn of new partners. And we work together with them, bringing them in as reviewers on our material and also on a case consultation. So if we have a case that has various issues that are intersecting with a case of abuse, then we're going to pull in consultants to make sure that we have the views and perspectives of people who specialize in those fields. I have only one last question for you, but before I ask that, I want to allow you to just let us know if there's anything else you'd like to share. I'd want to share with anybody who might be listening that it just takes one person to be a champion Beautiful in your community in your organization, even just your family, and that you could save lives and you could impact hundreds or thousands of people. It just takes speaking up a little bit and putting this issue on the agenda and you can have impact that reaches on for generations. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's powerful and true. So um, if you've heard of the other podcasts, the most Jewish thing I do every day is to wake up and say, 
Modani, I'm grateful. And uh, I want to ask you today, what are you grateful for, Sherry? Today, I am grateful to be alive and well. I'm grateful for my safety, for my freedom, for the privilege I have to sit here with you and have this conversation. Given that it's Friday, I'm grateful for Shabbat, which is the best gift I've ever been given in my entire life. And because it's a gratitude that I carry with me every day, I'm grateful beyond words for my children. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to learn about sacred spaces and to really start to think about how that affects what I'm doing as well. So that was a great learning for me today. And I'm very grateful for learning every day. So thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for tuning in to the Bridging Connections podcast. This podcast and Bridges 613 will succeed if its social media reach is wide. Please partner with us to promote this important work. You can follow us on Facebook at Bridges 613 and visit our website at www bridges613.org. There, you can read blogs, listen to past podcasts, and subscribe to our newsletter. Please share the podcast and our social media links with your community and enable others to benefit and learn about the groundbreaking innovation taking place in our beloved Jewish community. Your support is greatly appreciated.